Our Father, your word tells us that it's through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. And that's our prayer today, that your spirit would open and apply your word to us, that we might have hope for the journey, hope for the pressing on to be like Christ. We would ask humbly that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Would invite you to open God's word with me to three places. We'll begin in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, and also Hebrews 12, which we read earlier, and 1 Peter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, Hebrews 12, and 1 Peter 1. Reading first, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I preach in the mornings, we are in a series on what is the church? What does the true visible church of Jesus Christ look like where God is displaying his glory? And we've been looking, uh, following the Nicene Creed, what is the church? Those attributes of the church, the one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And we've looked at three of them so far, one, Catholic, and apostolic today What do we mean when we affirm from Scripture that we believe in Christ's holy church? You might say, how can anybody say that the church is holy? As Kuiper put it, the world goes better than expected, and the church goes much worse than expected. She's so much below her estimated value. We see so much failure and corruption scandal, abuse in the visible church, and we know our own hearts. How can we possibly say, I believe in the holy church? Well, for two reasons. Because God's word tells us that the church's identity in Christ is holy, and secondly, the church's calling in Christ is to be holy. And we'll look at both of those today. How can we profess that we believe in the holy church? Because, first of all, the church's identity in Christ She's counted holy. We just read these verses in 1 Corinthians 1, and it's really rather amazing. There's no other New Testament epistle where Paul opens with such praise and confidence as this letter to the church in Corinth. And he starts off so strong. You're God's church, verse 1. And not, not only so that every congregation, in the sense, is God's church. It's not man's church. It's the church that's located in Corinth. It's the church of God. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I think it's more the sense of this is God's church because I know that I could not have planted a church in Corinth. That's like saying, imagine a church in Sodom. God had to do this. God had revealed to Paul, don't be discouraged. I'm planting a church. I'm going to call people to myself. And Paul saw that the word of God went forth and God called people to himself. And a church was planted in Corinth. You're God's church. 
And then he tells them, you're a holy church. And he tells them this twice. Verse 2, it says, to you who are sanctified. Why the past tense? Sanctified means uh, declared holy or in the process being made holy. Why would he say sanctified, past tense? Well, when a person puts their faith in Christ, that he has died on the cross, paying for the sins and taking the punishment that we deserved, two things happen. Our sins are credited to Christ, and he takes the punishment for them. But then Christ's righteousness is credited to the believer, and we are declared righteous, the righteousness of Christ. And that believer is your status through the rest of your life. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so Paul refers to these believers in Corinth as sanctified. Something decisive has happened in their past. You've been declared holy because you're standing in the righteousness of Christ. Sanctified. And then he goes on and he says, again, called to be saints. Saints just means holy ones. Every member of the church of Corinth is being called a holy one. (laughs) Now, a necessary qualification for salvation in Jesus Christ in order to be a communicant member of the church is to admit that you're a sinner and to admit that you need the cleansing and the forgiveness of Christ in order to receive the free gift of salvation, the work of Christ on the cross. The necessary qualification is to admit that you're a sinner needing the forgiveness of Christ. As Reichen put it, with the exception of the prison system, the church is the only institution for bad people. (laughs) To enter the church of Jesus Christ, you must admit, I am a sinner, needing the forgiveness of Christ. So how in the world could Paul call all of these believers in Corinth saints, holy ones, Saints is used, the word saints is used some 60 times in the New Testament, and do you know that it's always used in the plural? It's never used of an individual. It's always used of the church as a group. We're not lone saints. We're members of a community that is holy. We believe in the holy church. Well, then how can Paul refer to these forgiven sinners in Corinth, as holy ones. Their lives were still a mess, quite immature. Deffenbaugh writes about the church in Corinth. Imagine a church racked with divisions and factions. They are preaching cults where church members favor one particular preacher over another. The church is filled with sexual immorality. Some of the members are visiting prostitutes. One church member is having an affair with his stepmother. The church members don't work out their problems. Instead, they sue each other in civil courts. Debates rage on topics like Christian liberty, men's and women's roles, prophecy, speaking in tongues. And to top it all off, the Lord's Supper is abused, and a significant number do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's Corinth. And Paul calls them saints. The church is a mess. And he's going to call them to repentance. The book of 1 Corinthians is a very stern letter, strong letter, calling them to repentance. In fact, he will say in the second letter, 2 Corinthians 7, I was afraid my first book was too strong. (laughs) 
But you, there was a lot of issues that I had to deal with and call you to repentance. You're an absolute mess. But nevertheless, your status in Christ, believers, is righteous, saints. Because it's the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us. And for our whole life, believers, we are righteous and sinners at the same time. We're righteous, declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And still, sinners pressing on, confessing our sins, both are true. We're still sinners striving to become holy the rest of our lives. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a good reminder until Christ returns, the church of Jesus Christ will never be sinless. Just as in the individual's life, you will never be sinless in this life. We won't be there until we reach glory and are perfected. And so too, the visible church of Jesus Christ. She won't be that holy bride until Christ returns. As John Calvin says, the Lord is daily at work, smoothing out wrinkles and cleansing spots. And yet we can confidently rest in Christ's promise, Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, our Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we don't look for perfect churches. We don't look for perfect believers. We can't find them. But the amazing thing is, a believer who's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, even your sins do not disqualify you from being called a saint because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, individually, corporately. The church's identity is holy. That's what we're professing. And then secondly, we're professing not only the identity is holy, but we're professing that the calling is to be holy. Do you know that each person of the Trinity is committed to your holiness? That's astounding. Why God would have saved the likes of us and be committed to our holiness. <laughs> Growth and holiness is guaranteed by the Father's election. He, Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose you in eternity past for salvation and then bringing even discipline in our life, remember Hebrews 12, for your holiness. Though God does not elect men because he foresees they will live holy, yet he elects them that they may, may live holy. Thus God in the decree of election ordained that man should walk in good works, created unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them, Jonathan and Ruth. Growth and holiness is guaranteed by the Father's election. Your growth and holiness is secured by the Son's redemption. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He loved us in the past tense, pointing to his death on the cross. He gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. And he's continuing to work what he began in us. Five verbs there, all stacked up. He loved her. He gave himself for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her that he might present her to himself. Why? 
Verse 27, the he's emphatic. The apostle is stressing, this is a divine work. Jesus Christ is going to do this. He's going to present the church to himself as holy. He's married to us, not because he found us beautiful. We were rebels and under his judgment that he married to make us beautiful in his sight, in his holiness. Growth and holiness is guaranteed by the Father. It's guaranteed by the Son. Your growth and holiness is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 read this morning in Sunday school, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? Because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If there's no striving to be holy, the only reality is that God's not working in you. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not a believer. Romans 8, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You're pressing on in holiness. Because the Holy Spirit who lives in the heart of the believer is giving you both the willingness, the desire to do it, and the ability to do it, and to press on in repentance and faith. I love how D. Young put it. The Christian life involves a fight, but it's a fight we will win. You have the Spirit of Christ in your corner. Sin may get in some good jabs. It may clean your clock once in a while. It may bring you to your knees. But if you are in Christ, it will never knock you out. You are no longer a slave, but free. Sin has no dominion over you. It can't. It won't. A new king sits on the throne. You serve a different master. You salute a different Lord. The triune God is committed to your holiness. And therefore, the true believer must also be committed to personal holiness. Our holiness is a command. Turn to Hebrews 12, which we read earlier, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive is in the imperative, and it's covering both strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a an imperative, a command, strive for holiness. This is a key mark of a believer. Not an extra, not an option for some, non-negotiable. This is for every true believer to be put, committed more and more to be putting off sin and more and more to be putting on the likeness of Christ out of obedience to the word. Second Corinthians 7.1, we are to bring holiness to completion. That's the goal of our life. Do you know that the word holy in scripture appears? If I were to ask you how many times, how many times do you think it would occur? Holiness in some form or another in scripture appears 1,097 times. I think that's a major theme of scripture. <laughs> Strive for holiness. Verse 14, without which holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's three negatives there. No, never, no one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, all who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you hear the solemnity of this? 
Anyone who is a professing Christian cannot dare to trifle with sin. This is why we strive for holiness. God means it. Those who are not pressing on in holiness because you have the Holy Spirit living within you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So J.I. Packer writes, in reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we're justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. De Young again, my fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. He saved us to holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. It's a command. And therefore, it's a struggle. It's a lifelong reality. This command here, this imperative in verse 14, to strive is in the present tense, which means that you never let up. It's going to always be there your whole life. Strive, pursue, go after it, hunt. It can be translated in different ways. Make every effort, the NIV puts it. The whole chapter starts with the metaphor of a race, verse 1. Run this race. And it's interesting, that word for race is, we've taken right into English the word agonize. <laughs> At times this is going to be very difficult and very hard. Don't grow weary. Settle in for the long haul. I'm reading 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Set your hope on this. Set again as an imperative, but this time it's a, the imperative is not the present tense, which is progress. This is an aorist imperative. It's a decisive act. Set your mind to this once and for all. Make a decision and stick to it. This is going to be the commitment of your life. You're going to follow after Christ, not half-heartedly. But you're all in. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And how are you going to do this? How are you going to set your hope on this? How are you going to make this a decisive decision of your life? Two ways, not be to conform to the former passions, but to be holy. And all your conduct, that's how you're going to do it. For all believers, this is in the singular, each one, press on in holiness. You don't focus on how far others have to go. You don't focus on how you compare to others. You're doing pretty good. The, the bar, you know, is the holiness of God. As I am holy, so you are too. And it's in all you do, verse 15. Not just a certain list of external behaviors, but even dealing with the heart. All believers and all you do for all your life, for 17, for the rest of your stay, for your rest of your sojourn. This is our calling in Christ. To press on in holiness, every one of us in all areas of our life, for all of our life. 
God has called us to be holy, and he will not stop until our holiness is perfected in glory. De Young wrote a book called The Hole in Our Holiness, H-O-L-E, The Hole in Our Holiness, and he raises this question. Among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperative or moral exertion. We're so eager not to confuse indicatives, what God has done, and imperatives, what we should do, that we get leery of letting biblical command lead uncomfortably to conviction of sin. We're scared of words like diligence and effort and duty. We know legalism, salvation by law-keeping, and antinomianism, salvation without the need for law, are both wrong. But antinomianism feels like a much safer danger. It's not. Does striving for holiness add one ounce to your salvation? No. Does your sanctification add to your salvation, to your justification in Christ? Absolutely not. You can never add to the merit of Jesus Christ. But is your growth in holiness, is your sanctification absolutely necessary? And the answer is absolutely yes. So we're driven to Christ daily to ask for grace to run the race. Your sanctification is absolutely necessary. So much so that anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet is living in sin without repentance and without striving to change can no longer have the assurance that they are a true believer. It's that serious. John writes that that way, doesn't he? In 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. He's been born of God. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Ferguson very pastorally writes, True, his love for me is not based on my qualifications or my preparation. But it's misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sakes. And nor does, it mean, he, does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his Son. Without that transformation and new conformity of life, we do not have any evidence that we were ever his in the first place. He accepts us the way we are despite the way we are. So he will forgive us and cleanse us, and the Holy Spirit will cause us to press on to the likeness of Christ. True Christians will continue to struggle with sin throughout their whole life, and the key word is struggle. False professors of Christian faith 
Christian in name only, love, embrace, condone, rationalize their sin. But truly converted Christians admit, confess, hate, grieve over their remaining sin and earnestly seek to fight against it. This fight is a chief sign of the Holy Spirit's renewing and sanctifying of the soul, A.W. Pink. If the triune God is committed to our holiness, then the believer is committed to our holiness, and we are to press on because holiness is a command, holiness is a struggle, and third, holiness is a group project. We profess, I believe, in a holy church. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by some by it, some have become defiled. There is a responsibility to watch for each other, care for each other, speak to each other, pray for each other, watch out for each other's souls. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And how does James close his epistle? Chapter 5.19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's in the church as a group of believers that we have believers and brothers and sisters that will warn us of sin, that will call us to repentance, who care enough about our holiness that are going to call us back when we wander. The Holy Spirit uses his church, his body, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to give us hope, to give us examples, to give us prayer, warriors. A person who claims to be a believer and is not in the church of Christ in a vibrant way of relationships will not effectively grow in holiness because growth in holiness is a group project. Christ is making us holy together. It's so important to be more than just someone who shows up Sunday morning. You must be involved in somebody's life. Do you have people that you can say to them, I'm struggling with this sin. Would you pray for me? Would you ask me how I'm doing? Do you have those relationships? You need to if you're going to make it to the end. This is a group project. We are all to have people that know you well. Not everybody to the same degree. But there's going to be some that know you well and can speak the truth into your life. Do you you give permission to people to speak the truth to you? Or do they get too close and up go walls? Michael Griffiths put it, I think, very powerfully, people who do not become properly integrated into and involved in a congregation of God's people are missing something really essential. They will never develop and mature properly as Christians. They're missing out on essential areas of communication and relationship with their fellow believers. They are to be pitied, but they must also be helped. This Christian needs, first of all, to be persuaded that His isolated individualism is biblically wrong and spiritually deficient. It's not enough to use the phrase born again and then behave as though we've been born orphans in a wilderness. 
we must recognize that if God has begotten us again, then we have been born into the new family, to the household of God. There is no future for the Christian individual in isolation from the church. The general and proper pattern of the normal Christian life is to be lived in warm, joyous fellowship with other believers in God's family. The Christian's identity, your standing in Christ, believer, you who have professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is holy. And therefore your calling is to be holy. Both are true. Your status and your calling. John Calvin, for though obedience does not make us children, as the gift of adoption is gratuitous, yet it distinguishes children from aliens. Hence we learn what Christians ought to propose to themselves as an object throughout life, that is, to resemble God in holiness and purity. Have you been challenged today to take any area of your life more seriously? Calling to repentance and faith, to be specific. Have you been challenged from God's word again to renew that pursuing after holiness? There's maybe particular areas that you realize you've become slack in and need to press on. Maybe you've been challenged to commit yourself to help the body here to grow in holiness as a group project. How would you improve that? Is there anyone today who's maybe pretty weary and discouraged in this whole race of holiness? It's been a long struggle. It's been a discouragement. Well, look back to what we were saying earlier. It's the, the triune God has committed himself to this. And he will complete the work that he's begun in each of his children. Don't grow weary. It's a race. It's a lifelong project. Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, wrote this resolution, quote, never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, my sinful nature. However unsuccessful I may be, never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. We have confidence to keep on pressing because we have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. We have the assurance of the work of the Holy Spirit that he will complete the work that he's begun in us. In 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed. At that time, it cost $77 million. The bridge was built in two stages. The first stage went very slowly, and the second stage, they were surprised, went very rapidly. In the first stage of construction, there were no safety devices that were used, and as a result, 23 men fell from the construction to their deaths. However, for the second part of the project, a large net was put up as a safety precaution. At least 10 men fell into it, but they were saved from certain death. And it was an interesting observation that 25% more work was accomplished after the net was installed. 
Why? Because the men had the assurance of their safety, so they were free to wholeheartedly serve the project. You who have been saved by God's grace, I don't say this disrespectfully, you've been given a safety net in Jesus Christ. It's on account of his person and work with complete confidence you can press on in holiness. We have a safe status. We have his righteousness which is credited to us. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So therefore, press on in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We recite, we profess, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Shall we pray? Thank you for your word. Thank you that as you send it out, it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. To those who are perhaps weary in the Christian life, and this race has been very difficult, they're in a, a stretch with a lot of headwind. We pray that they will not be weary will seek out the comfort and encouragement of the body of Christ. For any of us, for all of us, that we might be more committed, renewed to press on in holiness, looking to you and your promises and your word. Show us all how we can be better committed to one another in this project. Pull any who are in isolation into the body of Christ. It's not that we are perfect or have our act together. We have plenty of failures and struggles, but we're doing it together. And we're encouraging one another in Christ who is our sufficiency. Thank you for the Church of Christ. We are so grateful to be a part of her. And thank you for the day when, Lord Jesus, you return and you will perfect your church. And at that day, she will be the glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>